Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning. Today is April 23rd, I believe. And it is uh, over 50 days that we've been in stay-in-place quarantine due to the coronavirus. At least in California, uh, we were quarantined where where I live, uh, March 10th. So I uh, hope everyone's staying well. You know, certainly hope the East Coast is um, on the downward trend. And I'm here to welcome Patrick Cody. Uh, a guest that was actually on my very, very first show, Hiding in Place. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm really good. So uh, it's really, uh, you know, it's been almost 10 years, Pat. I know. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> I know. In June, it will be 10 years for this show when you were on at the anniversary of when you were on uh, on uh, the case with Frank Dryman, who was a fugitive yes. Uh, that you found, you actually I found, found identified in Arizona him. City. Yep, it was a, a <laughs> great thing. You and uh, Pat Shaughnessy and Sheila Clopper worked together to uh, bring him to justice and send him back to jail, back to prison rather. Yeah, and, uh, and he uh, passed away in prison. Uh, he never could make uh, parole again. But it was great teamwork with uh, with uh, two other PIs, and and uh, yeah. I'm glad we were able to get a successful conclusion for our client, Clem Pellet. Yes, Clem Pellet is a great guy. Just the background about Clem, he was a, a, a well-known oral surgeon that had this crazy thing with his family where his, this guy, Frank Dryman, killed his grandfather, and he yep. found out about it years and years later after his uh, he was taking care of his mother's effects, and uh, he's now a private investigator, which is just yeah. such a funny uh, chain of events. But anyway, so and, uh, Did welcome. you know that he's filming a movie in Montana? I do, yeah. He's filming the movie about this case. Right. It's uh, super, really super. He's a good guy. He's a really good guy, both uh, me and his wife. We stay so, in touch every now and then. Yeah, I, I'm in touch with him as well. It's it's very fun, very very nice. Um, but Pat, that's not why you're here today. This is a completely kind of a uh, cross the room topic of snitch testimony. Right. So um, you've written an article about it, which is very interesting. I've been in cases as well where there's been snitches. It's uh, let's talk about that when. When does law enforcement or the prosecution use snitches? Uh, they'll they'll use the prosecution will use snitches uh, anytime. Uh, if you usually when a uh, person is uh, uh, locked up in jail and and all they have to do and the defendant is is uh, waiting, he couldn't make bail, he or she and. It's just a waiting game. Uh, sooner or later, someone's going to come forward and say, uh, "Hey, uh, talk to uh, the DO and and uh, contact the prosecutor. I have some information for the prosecutor that be interested in." And uh, the only reason why they do that is uh, to better their situation, to maybe get a plea deal and get out of jail free card. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Um, and there's been a lot of famous snitches, as you know, my folks might remember Whitey Bulger, who was a, yes. a mob snitch, um, died in prison as well. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> but, but, and you have a, a really specific case. You want to talk to talk to us about that? Tell us all about uh, your client, Darren Craig. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, he, his, uh, it, this, this is a case that involved a murder 
of uh, the business owner, John Morrell, in Apache Junction, Arizona. And uh, he ran a uh, watch shop. Uh, he sold watches. He bought used watches. And he was running a business. Uh, Darren Craig uh, had a, little, a shop for the tattooing. And he had closed it because he wasn't getting enough business. But the person who owned the building and uh, Mr. Morrell was paying rent to was uh, Darren Craig's uh, girlfriend. Hmm. So on uh, January 8, 2013, uh, John Morrell was found murdered in the back room of his uh, shop, Watches, Watches. That's, that's what they called it. Hmm. And uh, he had suffered uh, gunshot wounds. And, the, uh, and what was interesting is that the victim's vehicle was parked out front and it was missing. So whoever shot him uh, took his vehicle. And Pat, they thought that the motive was uh, a robbery, is that right? Yes, that's right. A robbery. So but it didn't there... make any sense that uh, Darren Craig was involved because anything's possible, but uh, I, I look at it from a common sense uh, point of view. You know, his girlfriend is getting rent uh, from Mr. Morell. Mm. So why should he be involved in, in a robbery? It just didn't what, make any sense. And was there, th- was there stuff missing? Yeah, there was some uh, watches missing and, and some uh, money. Okay. So the, uh, the, the police uh, did an investigation, and uh, they concentrated on uh, Darren Craig. Uh, they checked his background, and uh, they knew that he had been in prison, I, I think it was in... Uh, Wisconsin or Illinois, somewhere around there, as I recall. But uh, on on the day of the uh, murder, uh, he happened to be uh, with his uh, female associate. I, I don't. Some people say it was his uh, second girlfriend. But when when his uh, girlfriend went to work, uh, he went over to this person's house. Her name is Tina Kennedy. Okay. And uh, then they got a, uh, she got a call from Thomas Solois. Uh, he was the other defendant in the case. And uh, he called and asked if uh, they could pick him up. And he was on, uh, he was along the highway on uh, Highway 60. And uh, coincidentally, that's where they found the uh, abandoned vehicle of Morell. So, uh, so the police had a connection. And... Uh, they picked up Solois, and along the way, uh, they decided to go to uh, Superior, Arizona. It's a mining town a uh, short distance away. And along the way, Solois uh, discarded some pieces of evidence, uh, a cell phone and uh, some pieces of clothing. Now, the police, now they got this information from uh, Kennedy. Mm-hmm. But the police searched the area, and they they couldn't find the uh, the evidence alongside the road. So they arrested Craig for hindering prosecution, but not Kennedy. And I thought that was interesting. Right. So, and, uh, and do you think? Just a question. Do you think uh, Kennedy made it up that he disposed of this stuff, or or did it really happen? Well, I I still don't know to this day uh, if. If he had disposed of these items, it would have certainly been alongside the road, at least the, the, you know, the cell phone, maybe the pieces of clothing. I, I don't know. Uh, I think. But the police searched for it along Highway 60. They couldn't find it. Uh, so, uh, and then uh, Solois was, was arrested in Phoenix. Um, he was in a car. And when the police searched the trunk, they found uh, the gun belonging to Morrell and some watches. So hmm. they went to the grand jury. Now, originally, uh, Craig was charged with hindering prosecution. That charge was dropped. Then they uh, indicted both men, Solis and Craig, for murder in the first degree. 
and then the prosecutor noticed the uh, death penalty. So this was a death penalty case that I was on for quite a while. And uh, from... So, Pat, let me uh, ask you a question. Uh, Excuse me a second. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Sure. Uh, in your area, do they normally impanel a grand jury? Is that your, the normal process, or is this was yes. this unusual? Yeah, no. Uh, they impanel a grand jury for felonies. Okay. Because in our state, they do it uh, arbitrarily, pretty much. It's, it's whenever they don't have enough evidence to actually go forward with the charge. Right. Well, the old saying goes, you can indict a ham sandwich. So, <laughs> exactly. So uh, all the prosecutors presenting uh, the probable cause to the grand jury, and all they have to do is say, uh, yep, uh, that sounds good to me, and then they vote mm. to uh, indict. Right. Right. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, I needed to answer, ask that question. Oh, okay. <laughs> so when I uh, met with uh, Darren for the first time, we were talking about the case, and he looked me, at, he looked me in the eye, and he says, I didn't do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the way he said it, he was emphatic about it, and I believed him. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't believe, uh, you know, all defendants. Right. And, uh, you know, some of them lie. Uh, some of them tell the truth. Uh, some of them have half-truths. Well, in this particular case, I thought he was telling the truth. Because it just, it, the way the investigation happened and, and the way uh, it ended up where, where they got a snitch uh, to say that he confessed to him uh, in jail... And uh, now I can tell you, uh, dealing with uh, past inmates on a lot of other cases, uh, they're not going to confess to other inmates in jail. So I knew that one was a problem. Uh, so, so, Pat, Pat, let's. Yes. This is a really good time to talk about your background because you're not a slouch regarding. Uh, people who commit crimes. So you've been a police chief a couple of different places. Uh, right. You've you've been a, uh, an officer. Uh, I mean, you've had a lot of uh, maybe, what, 20, I'm thinking 20, 25 years. years. of Yeah, lots of years. 30 years. <laughs> 30 years of police experience. So right. for, for you to say you believe him is a huge leap. Yeah, from, it was. Yeah. So you're not and, just uh, a, a, somebody brand new coming in and say, oh, this guy's a good guy and I believe him. You have 30 years of police experience behind you. That's exactly right. Okay. And uh, every time I spoke to him, uh, his story didn't change. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then lo and behold, they came up with a with the snitch. Uh, Rusty Reinhardt. Okay. He told the detention officer he had some in, important information to say about the case, and he wanted to talk to the prosecutor. And I have that happen in a number of other cases. Hmm. And, uh, you know, they'll, they, even with very little evidence, the prosecutors will use the snitch, because uh, if you're thinking about the jury system, the jury wants to believe the prosecutor uh, will, why else would that person be sitting in the defendant's chair? Exactly. And they want to believe the police officers who, who did the investigation. Right. Right. So the, uh, so the snitch would uh, add to the story, and uh, you'd, you would think, well, who'd want to believe a felon? Well, the, the prosecutors will use... These uh, convicted felons, the snitches, uh, jailhouse snitches all the time. Uh, If they think that uh, they can corroborate their investigation and, uh, you know, get a conviction, then they'll use them. But what was uh, lacking in this particular case is that that this uh, snitch, Reinhardt, said that Craig drew a bomb diagram and then a map giving directions to Tina Kennedy and her daughter, Tisha Kennedy. They were going to be witnesses against uh, Craig and Slois, and they want to get rid of the witnesses. Hmm. Uh, only thing is, 
where was the uh, bomb diagram in the map? No one could come up with it. Okay, uh, this is Pat. Let's take a break right now because uh, I want to get okay. into this bomb diagram business. We'll be right okay. back with with Patrick Cody right. from Arizona. Thank you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here. My guest is Patrick Cody from Casa Grande, Arizona, a licensed private investigator from Arizona. And we're talking about this snitch situation with a case that he had with his client, Darren Craig. You just said, um, Pat, that um, supposedly uh, this snitch, Rusty Ryland, said that Craig drew a bomb diagram. So what was the bomb diagram about? Well, I, I guess... I guess that's how they were going to get rid of the uh, the two witnesses against him. Okay, and, okay Miss, which was Tina Kennedy and her daughter. Right. Yeah. And uh, but the thing is that they couldn't they couldn't uh, find uh, the uh, the bomb diagram uh, or the map. Okay. So yeah, he so just made that was that was a problem for them. Yeah. Uh, the I'm sure that if they had a bomb diagram. And a map would have been given to the DO, and the DO would have made sure that the prosecutor's office got it. Mm-hmm. So, do you think so that that was, uh, that was a problem for him? Did Reiner just make that up out of thin air? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. So then, what happened after that? Uh, okay, so well, we had a snitch. And so my main focus was to uh, develop information to uh, impeach their star witness on the case. And uh, he's been in trouble before. He's been in prison before. Uh, So uh, what I did is uh, I got the uh, court information from, uh, from Pima Superior Court, the plea agreements that he signed, and... Uh, any other information in the file. And, and with that, I was able to get, I ordered the uh, police reports on two different cases. But he couldn't stay out of trouble. He got indicted for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon 
and criminal damage. Uh, this idiot was driving a vehicle, and he allegedly tried to run down several people who were on bicycles. Yeah. And uh, so he signed a plea agreement for endangerment, and he went back to prison. Uh, he didn't do much time. I'm sure that uh, Pinell County was in, uh, in communication with uh, Pima County Attorney's Office uh, to try to get him uh, a deal. They, they probably told him uh, that he was uh, going to be a witness in their case. Okay. After he was released from prison, he became involved in another case. He was arrested for domestic violence against his longtime girlfriend in uh, Tucson. And he also had some marijuana in his possession. So uh, here's what I did. I went to Tucson and interviewed his girlfriend. She was very cooperative and gave me some information. When I did interview her, uh, Reinhardt was, uh, you know, sitting in jail. He was over at the uh, Pima County Jail. Okay. And uh, she would call him every day. She still had a relationship with him, even though uh, that there was domestic violence. Uh, so I came out and I asked her if, if Reinhardt lies. And she said, do his lips move? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was, that was uh, pretty funny. <laughs> and she said that he will say anything to get out of jail. Yeah. So in both cases, uh, I went to uh, the clerk of courts. I got the information. I got the plea agreement, indictment, pre-sentence reports. And, the, uh, and I, I got the uh, police reports from the police departments. And then uh, I found that there was a 1998 case from Pinell County Clerk of Courts and found that there was a pre-sentence report for robbery conviction of a, uh, robbery conviction of a church. He had gone to church with a gun to commit a robbery, but was shot by the pastor. In a defense interview, he told the attorneys that he was praying in church when he got shot by the pastor. And they believed uh, him? Now, the <laughs> attorney had uh, plenty of things to work with to impeach the state's uh, snitch witness. So let me ask you, Pat, um, in Arizona, are you, are you able just to go to the police department and get these reports or the court and get these reports? Yes. Okay, uh, that's, but that's the, different. Uh, but the report will be redacted uh, for the uh, victim. The victim's information will be redacted along with the address and uh, date of birth. Uh, but I find out who they are anyway. That's not a problem. I just okay. uh, run their names in their, and uh, through, through my uh, uh, database that I use. Okay, and your database has criminal records. Is yes. that correct? Okay. And so I that's... can do online using the uh, public information access. I get a lot of information uh, that way. That's different than some just states. Pop the yeah. person's name in uh, a Google search and see what article, see what articles come up. Right, exactly. I get a lot of information that way too. Okay. So, so you had a lot of information for your for your client, the attorney, regarding yes. uh, the snitch against Daniel. Right. So, how did that play yeah. out in court? Uh, it was good. So, now, keep in mind that this was a uh, capital trial. Uh, so, about two weeks uh, before we went to trial, we went to trial on June, July 18, 2016, the uh, prosecution moved to remove the death, uh, death penalty provision. Okay. And oh. do you know what that decision was based on? Uh, they didn't say, but uh, that would tell me that uh, they didn't have good evidence to convict them for murder in the first degree, and you know, along with the death penalty. That's that's mm-hmm. what it told me. Okay. Now the prosecutor, in his uh, opening statement, said that Craig was the shooter. Now, uh, you know, going back, there's no way that they could prove that unless uh, unless they. Uh, tried to turn Sirois early on. Uh, they couldn't turn uh, Sirois. And here's something else that was interesting. Uh, I got a call from 
uh, from the jail, and I took it. I, uh, you know, I have quite a few clients in jail, and they'll call me, and I'll take the call. And this happened to be Thomas Salois. He asked me hmm. to get in touch with uh, Darren's girlfriend to say that he was having some problems with his feet. You know, he was in pain, and he wasn't getting the medical care, and uh, he wanted her to call uh, Pinal County Sheriff's Office uh, to complain about the uh, lack of medical treatment. Now, that's not the only time. He called me up uh, a second time. Okay, so this uh, is so the co-defendant. I, the co-defendant So I knew that they you. weren't going to turn. Yeah. I knew that they weren't going to turn uh, Royce uh, against uh, Darren Craig. Okay. So and, then uh, what happened? it turns out, I'm getting some uh, static in the background. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Okay. All right. Yeah, I don't know what it's it is. A, <laughs> okay, so anyway. Um, but I, I thought, anyway, getting back to my point, uh, usually the co-defendants don't call me. And I don't talk to them because they, have, uh, they already have an attorney. Right, exactly. So this was unusual that he called me. Uh, you know, that's, that's telling me that he's, he's not going to testify against, uh, you know, during Darren Craig. Now, a lot of times they'll use the uh, co-defendants and uh, you have the person have a, have the person get a deal uh, to cooperate, and that's how they turn the uh, defendant, the co-defendant, against the uh, my client, uh, Darren Craig, or any other exactly. client. Exactly. Exactly. So, what happened during the trial? Uh, it went. It was supposed to last about three weeks, but it only lasted about eight days. <clears throat> uh, they just they just didn't have the evidence. Now there was a. Uh, I'm sure everyone's aware of uh, uh, Perry Mason uh, TV shows, and this right. was called the uh, the Perry Mason moment. Okay. A Phoenix police officer, the state's witness, misidentified Craig as Salois. But Craig wasn't uh, with Salois when he was arrested. So he couldn't have mixed him up. He just made a mistake. Right. The uh, state didn't use uh, Tina Kennedy uh, as a witness. So she didn't testify. So now they were uh, relying entirely on Reinhardt's jailhouse snitch testimony. And, uh, you know, like I said, they didn't have uh, any forensic evidence to connect uh, Darren Craig uh, to the crime that they watch his watches shop. Now, even if he had the DNA, uh, he's been in the shop doing maintenance anyway. So he had a reason right. to be there. Right. So, Pat, who found uh, Morrell? Who found, found him murdered? Uh, that is a good question. I think someone that was, uh, I think somebody was, had stopped. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but I think somebody had stopped by to check on him and uh, found him dead in the back room. Okay. That was the only thing. I think it was, you know, a friend that had called and, and then went to go check on him and then found him dead. Okay. So back to the trial. Were uh, Salois and Craig being tried together? No, they were tried separately. They were tried separately, okay. And yeah. do you know why that was going on? Uh, usually the, uh, the, the attorneys will uh, sever, sever the trial. In other words, have a separate trial. And uh, in this case, uh, it was severed. It was, uh, it was a capital case for, for both of them. Okay, so when the so police officer misidentified... together, yeah, even in uh, murder in the first degree... Uh, without the capital murder designation, uh, most of the time you'll see that that the uh, trials get severed. Okay, so when the police officer misidentified Craig as Solis, or vice versa, which was it? <laughs> it misidentified uh, him misidentified, anyway. Uh, misidentified, well, Craig was uh, at the defendant's table, and I was there too. Okay, and, and so he misidentified and so uh, Craig, thought it was Solis. Okay, and and Salois wasn't even in the room, so... No. 
Okay. Uh, he went to trial separately uh, later on. All right. And then, uh, okay, so then was Craig acquitted? Yes, he was. He was found not guilty on all counts. The, the uh, state could not prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And after three years, uh, Craig walked out of jail a free man. So the jury obviously didn't believe the snitch. Right. That's right. And did the attorney, um, I guess your client, uh, the attorney for Daniel Craig, did he, how did he impeach um, the witness, the snitch? How did he, what did he use to impeach him? Your information well, the, that you uh, gathered? He used the, uh, the information uh, that I gave him and uh, skillf- skillfully cross-examined him uh, you know, to create a doubt. And, and I, from the looks of the, uh, the jury, because I was watching the, the jury too, uh, I don't think they believed the one word that came out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. And you were sitting at the defense table? Yes. Okay, assisting the attorney. Right. Okay. Yeah, usually I'm there in these types of cases. So, um, and then, Salois, what happened with him? He was tried separately uh, later on, a couple months later, I believe. And uh, so he had a uh, hung jury. But this time, they had uh, Tina Kennedy uh, and her daughter, uh, Tisha Kennedy, testify. Uh, now, I wasn't there for that, but I'm sure there was plenty of fireworks on the cross-examination. So, uh, so in the end, uh, he was, there was nine votes for not guilty and three, three for guilty, so the judge declared a mistrial. So okay. In other words, they would have to do it again. So they turned around and... Uh, they signed a uh, plea agreement for manslaughter and in, uh, and a felon in possession of a firearm. But okay. he was a convicted felon. Uh, when they found a gun in the trunk, uh, you know, they got him for that. And he agreed that the stolen property uh, was in his possession. And he agreed to, to take a plea for manslaughter. And for ten and a half years. Well, now, with it the, is, uh, manslaughter in Arizona, yeah. you serve eighty-five uh, percent. Okay. And then the weapon adds another something, a few years. Right. That that was uh, that's to serve concurrently. Uh, that was that was the plea agreement, and uh, he'll, he'll probably be out. I think 2022, so he's got a couple more years, and then uh, then he's going to be out. So, so it's, it's, he's, it's interesting to me, Pat, that the prosecutor wasn't able to get a conviction on Salois since he had the weapon that was identified as a murder weapon, and, you know, I mean, it seems like they would have done a better job at that end. Right. You can see how they wouldn't get one on Craig, because they couldn't really tie Craig into it. Right. That was, that was a, one of the main problems is that there was uh, no eyewitnesses, uh, even mm-hmm. in the early morning uh, when, when people are out, out and about. Uh, they had gotten uh, videos from the surrounding stores to see if they could identify anyone in the videos. They couldn't identify the person in the car that was driving away. It was one person in the car. They just uh, didn't have uh, the evidence. Now, mm-hmm. when they uh, caught him with the watches and the gun in the car, uh, he lawyered up. He wouldn't talk. Interesting. Yeah, there was, uh, Phoenix police had arrested another person, too. Uh, uh, I'm sure they, they talked to him, but they couldn't get any information out of out of voice. And... Yeah. Uh, and what happened with Tina and Tisha Kennedy? Did they just go off into the background, or what? What happened with them? Well, Were they uh, st- she, still involved with either party? 
they didn't pursue any charges uh, against either her uh, or hmm. her daughter. Now, well, what happens in some of these cases is that uh, people that are involved in a case, and, uh, and there probably should be criminal charges, uh, they'll treat them like a witness so they testify against the defendant. Right. Uh, other words, early on, when when uh, Darren Craig and, and Tina Kennedy picked up Solois uh, off the road uh, by on the Highway 60, uh, she had knowledge. They, they only charge her with. They didn't charge her. They only charge uh, Darren Craig with hindering uh, prosecution. In other words, withholding evidence. Right. And not not helping to assist uh, the prosecution. Okay. So why didn't they charge her? Yeah. Well, I can tell you why. Because they wanted to use her. They wanted her testimony. Yeah. 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 Uh, Pat, let's let's take another quick break because uh, I want to okay. get into um, investigating snitch testimony a little bit more. Okay, we'll be right okay, back. That's- the internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Patrick, Cody, and I are talking about snitch witnesses and what you do about uh, investigating them. And, and you know, Pat, um, my experience with snitches is usually because the prosecution case is a little weak. And we've even had situations where uh, they've, they've planted somebody that uh, they are hoping will be uh, gather information from the defendant. Either, uh, you know, they give them newspaper articles to read so they know about the case, and then they put them next, in a cell next to the defendant so they become acquainted uh, and then use the information from the, from the news articles to say that this particular defendant told them a story. So uh, that's been my experience with uh, weak cases on the prosecution. It didn't sound like that was the case here. Um, but I, I just wonder what you do when you have a uh, suspected snitch and how you go about investigating the background uh, if there aren't any uh, prior police activity. Well, it's a little bit more difficult 
And, uh, and you're right. Uh, when, when the prosecution decides to use a snitch, uh, they're probably not that confident in their case. And the whole idea regarding the prosecution is, is to find the truth, but sometimes they're not interested in finding the truth. They want to get a conviction mm-hmm. in court and so that they can pad their resume. Uh, and I've been around long enough uh, to see this tactic being used uh, a lot of times with the, with the snitches. So what I do is I try to uh, get as much information from a background, uh, criminal history, if there's no criminal history, and, uh, you know, I might, I'll have a conversation with the, uh, with the uh, defendant slash client and ask him or her, uh, who did you talk to? in jail about your case. And, by the way, where did you leave your paperwork? And uh, that's one thing that I, I talk to, to the defendants about, is if you're, uh, don't leave your paperwork laying around where someone else can, can read it, and then all of a sudden they know the case and then they want to make a deal uh, to better their situation. Right. But if a person, if a, if a person does not have much in their background and... There's uh, nothing much that you can challenge. The prosecutor will uh, see if they believe the person when they, what they call, they do a free talk. In other words, the, uh, the defendant along with his or her attorney is there, the prosecutor is there, the case agent, the police is there, and uh, they'll, they'll talk to the person in what they call a free talk statement to see whether he, she knows, and if they... <clears throat> If they like if they like what the person is saying and it's going to help their case, then uh, they might do a plea agreement. And always in a plea agreement, they're going to have that uh, that they're going to testify. They call it a testimonial agreement, and they have to tell the truth. Right. In other words, tell the truth, but uh, you know, that goes both ways. Uh, they could be telling the truth, but it's not what the prosecutor wants to hear. So right. the person will uh, say what the prosecutor wants to hear. Yeah, truth is, uh, depends on perspective, I guess, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's elusive. Uh, the truth is, what the prosecutor, uh, what the prosecutor believes it to be. Yeah, and it might not That's, be the truth. Right. And and you know, uh, the prosecutor. I I have to say that I I have to sympathize a little bit with the prosecutors, because unless they get convictions, they're looked askance from their department. They have to have a record of convictions to enable them to keep doing their job within their own DA's office. Uh, exactly. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that they, uh, they keep score and uh, high-five one another once they get a conviction. And yeah. uh, in some cases, uh, rightly so, you know, and not everyone is... is uh, Lying and or not guilty. There's some people that that are uh, truly innocent, and and uh, hopefully justice will swing their way. You know, justice is blind. Got to take uh, and they got the blindfold on. But uh, sometimes the well, the prosecutor has the upper hand. Uh, they have an endless amount of resources that they can use uh, to help get a conviction. Where the defendant is. Uh, sitting there with the defense attorney. In a lot of cases, the public defender, some of them are very good, but they have limited resources. So right. it's just like uh, ganging up on the person uh, with, uh, with uh, so-called evidence that uh, they develop a, a theory of the case, and that's what they uh, want to prove. And they go along with the, uh, with the police officers or detectives' theory of the case, and sometimes the theory is is uh, not good. Now, one of the problems that I see in a lot of these cases is that the police will develop the theory, and and they'll overlook other things that are happening around the case, which uh, which could be possible. Maybe someone else committed the crime, and not right. the defendant. But uh, they develop the case, improve their case around their theory, and uh, and I think that's a flaw in the investigation. It's interesting, since you were uh, a police chief, you must have had officers, investigators under your command that did the same thing. How did you handle that 
as their supervisor? Well, that's a that's an excellent question, and yeah, I've had um, the uh, lieutenant would have to review the uh, the report or the captain, depending on the department, and if there was uh, now some of these cases would merit uh, further investigation, and that's what we tell the officer. You're going to have to get uh, go out there and uh, and get more information now. When I was a detective way back when in Bristol, Connecticut, uh, I was a detective for a couple of years you know, before I started getting promoted in the, in the lieutenant. Uh, name is Buzz Barton. Never forget him. Okay. He would tell us, he says, it's fine that you guys are, are making arrests, but I want you to cross your T's and dot your I's. I want a solid case. In other words, you have to consider everything. And uh, so I always kept that in mind. Um, when I was involved in, in other, uh, other cases, criminal investigations, say that there could have been other possibilities. Maybe someone else did it. The whole object of this is to find the truth. Yeah, and it really depends on the culture of the police department, doesn't it? Yes, uh, yes, it does. Sure. Yeah. So if, if they... And, if and they of course, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, of course the... Uh, whoever's in the in the detective division, detective unit, uh, they want to get results. Uh, they want to get felony arrest so they can, uh, you know, look good in front of their peers. You know, it's good to make all these felony arrests, but are, are these arrests solid? Uh, or are we sending an innocent person to prison when there's other possibilities? And, uh, and that's that's kind of like what I see is going around here in Arizona, not only here, but uh, in other states as well. Well, you know, it, <laughs> as we know, it, everything depends on stats. The investigate the police officer who makes the arrest, the investigator that uh, that does the investigation and turns it over to the prosecutor. The prosecutor wants the badges on his his arm as well. Uh, you know, it all yeah. <laughs> it all boils down that's, to that's uh, who performance. Wants to- Hire a prosecutor with a losing record. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, you, really, I mean, you. Uh, I mean, that's why I say I sympathize with them because their assignments, their evaluations depend on their convictions. If they get out too many acquittals or hung juries, they're persona non grata in their department. Right. Yeah, they're going to say, "Hey, something's wrong," and yet, yeah. uh, you know, it's, sometimes uh, I have some cases now they're. Prosecutors are dealt a, a bad hand, and and uh, the the uh, you know maybe they change prosecutors along the way, and uh, this person didn't bring this case to the grand jury. Then all of a sudden, there's uh, there's a lot of problems with the case, and and they're probably saying, "Oh boy, what do I do with this now?" But right. Get a plea agreement. That's what they try to uh, do. Yeah, on all these well, questionable <laughs> cases. <laughs> That's I, I I always have to laugh at that. I had a I had a client this last year. He had three trials, three hung juries, and they were going to try him a fourth time. Would have been the first time in the history of this county. And so, about long after the third acquittal. Uh, along about uh, three weeks before Thanksgiving, they came to him with a plea that he could, uh, time served, he'd been in in, uh, jail since 2015, almost five years, and he could get out, time served, and accept a manslaughter on a double murder case. And he refused. He said, no, I'm I'm innocent. And so they let him sit there, and finally, on the 60th day, which was the day they would have had to come back to trial they dismissed the case but it you know it's just, it's frustrating because it isn't about it's all about games a lot of times and that one was right. yeah very, I'll, I'll tell you it's uh it's pretty sad uh, when i was in law enforcement i was on the other side now i work on the dark side as they call it but it's all <laughs> about finding the truth uh, i used to you know, when i made an arrest uh i made sure that i had uh, I had a solid arrest. 
you know, even when I was in the detective division. And, you know, I had, I had statements, I had evidence, and, it, and it's a solid case. And the lieutenant would say, make sure that you, uh, even though you make the arrest, continue and, make, and do a follow-up. Make sure that you have uh, other evidence uh, that you can add. In other words, the investigation does not stop with the arrest. What I see now is that an arrest is made. Uh, a lot of times the case is over. They're not going to follow up anymore because mm-hmm. they already made the arrest. Yeah, and so what would you say, I know you work a lot of criminal defense cases, Pat. What would you say would be the percentage of solid cases that you get versus ones that are questionable? Well, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I just throw out a number. It could be a little bit more, could be a little less, 50% maybe. Um, you know, there's, there's always questions on, on some of these uh, cases. A lot of times they don't have the smoking gun, so to speak. Right. Uh, so they build their case on uh, circumstantial evidence. They say, well, he must have done it, uh, or, or he was in the area. And uh, a lot of the forensic evidence that they're developing these days uh, doesn't hold water, uh, you know, with yeah. the cell tower information. Uh, you know, there's questions right. on that. So anytime yeah. that, uh, that there's a question on the cell phone tower uh, or actual cell phones in their usage, uh, we'll get an expert uh, to help us uh, dissect that because the state is going to use that information to help convict the person. Right, so exactly. it's up to the defense to do due diligence to find that, uh, wait, wait a minute, there's a reasonable doubt here. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's not, maybe the cell phone tower information is erroneous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. really interesting as from a science that everybody thought was, oh, like DNA, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of variables. We're at the end of our time, Pat. It's okay. been a delightful talking to you again. Uh, well, thank, thank you so you very much, much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, this is great. Uh, I love talking to you and um, for the rest of you folks, stay safe, stay healthy. Uh, Stay away from the coronavirus. And uh, it's BI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Pat. You've been listening to PI's Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 